Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. I am Mara Kushelman, PhD student in microbiology. Hello, my name is Anne Chen, I'm a first-year student in health informatics. Hi, everyone, my name is Dylan Kim, and I'm a current undergraduate sophomore. Hey, everyone, my name is Ben Morkayani, and I'm a fifth-year medical student who's also pursuing his master's in public health here at Yale. And today, we'll be talking about our perspectives in AI and medicine. Yeah, so to start off, I guess we could go over some background stuff. And so what do you think are some potential applications you see in AI having on medicine? I mean, I think they're tremendous. I think that AI has utility in all the dimensions of clinical care, ranging from like screening to diagnosis to treatment optimization to procedural effectiveness and conduction. Um, there's already a lot of interesting projects that have gone on, but I think that uh, the, the thing that, I, I can list a few. So um, for people who don't have as much background in medicine, it can be a bit hard to understand how do we use these tools to kind of guide our management and effectiveness. Probably the biggest area for AI that I see having had utilization is in the role of imaging, where a lot of imaging radiographic findings, whether that's a chest x-ray, an MRI, or a CT scan, are based on pattern recognition algorithms that are normally carried out by a human brain. And the thing that AI and machine learning models are really good for is detecting the almost like subliminal messages in those patterns that we may not be able to appreciate. And so there's a lot of initial data showing how effective AI models can be in predicting all different types of outcomes based on imaging. One of the most interesting is, is looking at its promise in tracking cancer outcomes, looking at CT scans and MRIs and see what are these subtle messages that we may not be seeing as the clinician that a machine can see. So I think that that is probably the biggest and most obvious avenue in the role of imaging, but there's also a bunch in treatment optimization. There's a lot of like conventional neural networks have been used in, in improving detection and treatment of Kawasaki disease and diagnosing colorectal cancer and predicting liver cirrhosis. Like by looking at the whole cohort of data in front of you, um, what these algorithms have showed is there's much more than meets the eye. That there's so many subtle messages in the patient's health profile that can actually guide to a diagnosis. Got it. Yeah, and kind of taking a look at maybe like another side of it, uh, what are some of the potential ethical dilemmas we may face in light of AI implementation to medicine? Yeah, so I think that the ethical dilemmas, at least when we're confining it to medicine, because I think AI has a whole cohort of ethical dilemmas in the real world beyond medicine. The major ethical foundations and pillars that we think of right, as physicians is um, we have basic staples of like autonomy, beneficence, uh, non-maleficence, and justice. So some of the ones that aren't as well understood, like beneficence is one we often think of with a medical provider, caring for what is the best for your patient. Non-maleficence is more on that Hippocratic idea of do no harm. Justice, I think, is where, where AI becomes a little bit difficult. Equal treatment, health equity for all, right? That a lot of the technology required to use these, this infrastructure or to use these tools requires an infrastructure that disadvantaged groups may not have access to. Um, AI has tremendous utility in, in high-income uh, high nations with highly specialized healthcare services, but I worry that as we focus, it, focus and shift funding towards these models, we'll be forgetting a lot of people and we'll be forgetting a lot of healthcare systems. So uh, what I worry is that it may actually increase the gap in healthcare delivery and, and the disparities in, in healthcare delivery. Um, there's also uh, things that we think of with data collection, like 
uh, inherently they, there will be privacy issues, right, of how data is being stored and shared um, that makes it super susceptible or more susceptible than it currently is to like hacking to, uh, to you know, uh, data revelation that, that you know, there'll be a lot of HIPAA violations. Or I don't know how okay. HIPAA is going to approach AI, right? Um, and I think lastly, like in the ethical dilemmas is job protection, right? Like how do you care for the people that run the world today in a world where they may not be needed? So I think that we also have a duty to our own human companions to say like, yes, I want to push this field forwards, but I also want to protect you and make sure you have a job. And I particularly think of that with librarians, bookkeepers, surgical techs, medical scribes. I used to be a medical scribe. And so the, these can all be conversations for later, but, but these are some at-risk industries that we also have to consider, right? Can you go a bit more detail into how AI can lead to this problem with like people getting jobs in the medical industry? Because I can understand it with office jobs, how yeah. it can lead to disparities, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't know how a lot of medical professions work and why they may be replaced by AI. Yeah, yeah. So I will say that there are certain medical professions that I think actually will be very stable. Um, I think of it almost like, uh, so I love chess. I, I, I'm a big, big chess player my whole life, right? And what we learned over a decade ago was that the best chess player, we thought chess was this game based on uh, intellectual strategy and, you know, and, and artistry, right? And what we realized is it's actually just a decision tree that's purely quantitative. And that true blue or whatever supercomputer can beat Magnus Carlsen 100 times out of 100. Yet we still watch Magnus. Yet we still watch chess. Right. We still watch them for the, that's for the entertainment, right? Now, I think that medicine, just as the chess player still has utility today, medicine has so much potential. We still need empathy. We still need care delivery that a machine cannot provide. But there are elements of that job industry that are more technical that I think are highly susceptible to replacement. I don't think the physician will see replacement. I don't think nurses, PAs, the people directly involved in clinical care but they, I think that, in fact, we're just expanding their toolbox. What I worry is that the people who are more operational, people like me, as a, at 22, I was a medical scribe wanting to apply to medical school. And it was a great way to get insight into an industry and free up physician time to focus on healthcare. You know, we're now, we're now having uh, AI models, um, like I think it's BotMD or Chatbot, that, that scribes for you real time, right? So what happens to that medical scribe? You could argue that in, from a utilitarian perspective, we're actually improving healthcare outcomes, but there is someone who won't have a job. When we look at the world of systematic reviews, uh, if anyone's written one, right, you, librarians are your essential people to guide you and help you conduct that research. Isn't an AI, isn't a machine the best librarian if we really gave it access to the full world's library? What will happen to that end of the job industry? Like, I think that there are select people who are based, whose skills are based on either data collection or data navigation that really will, will really have to consider how do we maintain their jobs? Do we, do we show them how to use AI? Do we reinvent what their job description is? Because um, if we're not careful, that can easily be eliminated and save industries money. So I think that's the ethical challenge, right? And just to follow up on that, do you think AI has the power to completely replace those jobs like um, clinical experts who are really good at diagnosing things because they view data all the time and they have years of experience? 
do you think AI can completely take over that by you know, managing bigger data and collecting information faster? Or do you think we still need those people based on the experience they have? So I think it comes to the question of what is the clinician's role? Because as a diagnostician, I would argue that for years, the clinician has not been the best resource. It's been the greater library of the internet. If you go into any medical ICU, you look at how many people have this website called Up to Date Up that is constantly refreshed by experts in the world on a particular topic, where even the attendings or any trainee realizes, I don't know everything to direct the clinical care of this patient. And what I think AI and machine learning can do is really just give you those tools more rapidly and excessively. Um, I think that the clinician is no longer, and has not been for a while, the distributor of health information. Um, in, or not distributor, the collector of health information. Um, but I think the role of the clinician, whether that's a nurse, a PA, or an MD or DO, is more in delivering the healthcare, right? You can take all the facts, you can know that there's a disease, but how do you treat it? You can, it's not just selecting the right antibiotic or selecting the right drug. So much of our healthcare success comes on proper education, on building strong connections and relationships, and these are essential to promote regular healthcare utilization. So I don't think anyone would be returning we all know a family member who has had bad relationships with the medical system, who no longer sees, or a family member or friend, who no longer sees their provider. A machine won't solve that problem, right? In reality, we know that what keeps people coming through the door for services is people. And I think that that is what, what inherently medicine will see, is that a provider will have a larger toolbox to carry out medicine far more effectively, far more consistently, with less bias and less prone to errors. But I think that the role of the physician is not just to select the antibiotic, because the current role of the physician isn't even to do that. Epic does it for us, or our ID team does it for us, right? Like, medicine exists in a, in, in a very hyper-specialized space that uses a bunch of different collaborators and partners. Um, and so I think AI will just be the conduit for all of that. Right. And, uh... I know you kind of brought up how AI can be like a toolbox. You kind of use that word a lot, you know, as a tool for especially, you know, primary care providers, so like physicians, right, nurses. But I want to bring in a different perspective as there have been concerns that the impl implementation of AI will actually lead to an increase in workload as clinicians will be able to process patient data more efficiently and therefore more patient data will just come flooding at them. And so do you think that this is going to happen or what do you think are some ways that we can pre prevent that from happening? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think that when we look at what this technology has for the physician, I'd argue that it would greatly improve the clinician's quality of life because I believe a primary care provider spends around 40 to 50% of their time dealing with electronic medical record data, right? Um, and EMRs are, you know, we're, we're in an era where physician burnout has been a massive topic for well over a decade. And it heavily correlates with the introduction of EMRs and why do we even use EMRs. EMRs are not made to better healthcare. They are not. They're made to provide strict legal representations of what healthcare is, right? And to adhere rigidly to the demands of, of healthcare legislation. I think what AI provides there is saying, hey there, physician, you will not have to sift through the volumes of data that you normally have to in order to make a decision or more, rea more realistically in order to document your decision. 
You could have real-time documentation of decisions you make, of narratives you hear, and free up a truly human connection between the provider and the patient. And it's ironic because I was the former medical scribe. The beauty of scribing was you got to see the doctor become a human again. I think it's something we've totally lost in today's medicine. You know, we, we focus too much on the human body, and yet we focus too little on humanity. And I think that AI, ironically, may be able to reveal the human inside us in those, in those clinical moments. But I think that it will introduce unique increases in clinical workload that we may not per totally predict. You know, as you have more time to spend with the patient, you will probably then see more patients. You will probably then increase your, your workload and maybe someone's salary goes up. Maybe hospitals make more money, right? But it'll be interesting to see how do we do judiciously use the, the power that this, this system has or do we just milk it for all the money it can provide? I wanted to take a look at it from a different perspective. If we have an AI that is trained in medical decision-making one way or another, yeah. And patients can also use it from their side. Um, in the United States, it's not as much of a problem, but for example, in different countries where you can just go to a pharmacy and buy any antibiotics that the CI suggests, anything. Um, how do you think it will impact the patient's lives and healthcare system globally? So it's, it's interesting. I, I think that you know the, the legislation that we have, at least here and in most countries, is you know uh, while a patient may have access to what medication they should be getting or could be getting, they can't go and demand it. They need a prescription. They need, a, at least in the US for, you know, if I wanna give someone uh, a higher level, a big gun antibiotic like vancomycin, no one can just walk into a pharmacy and demand it, right? Um, so I think that there's inherent legislation protecting the patient from just directing their own healthcare. Uh, I do think it actually could provide a more informed patient who could have higher level discussions with their physician. Rather than just saying, I don't know anything about antibiotics, I'll just take whatever you, you give me. And we notoriously have terrible antibiotic stewardship in this country, and um, they can actually propose a question saying, you know, maybe we have an AI model that can predict, predict current resistance profiles and says, my, my bot is telling me to take ciprofloxacin. Why did you prescribe this medication? And I think that actually can be, you know, I think a more informed public and a more informed patient can actually be quite beneficial. I think what it can do is overcome a lot of the issues we have today, where people have access to just enough healthcare information that they think they know a lot. They see WebMD and they're like, well, cancer is always a possibility, right? Um, but they don't have access to the breadth of data to really be like, oh, that's pretty unlikely on the differential, right? So I hope that AI can actually alleviate a lot of the armchair physician dynamics that we see in our patient population, providing a more in informed citizen base um, and having higher level, more impactful discussions. Does that, does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm still thinking about the countries, which is most countries outside of the United States, where you can just go into a pharmacy and buy mycomycin if you want to. I don't know. Uh, but yeah. Without I, any? They would just give you it? I'm from Russia personally. You can just walk into a pharmacy and buy anything except for very heavy, um, like psych drugs. That's insane. <laughs> I, okay, I, I'm shocked. Okay. <laughs> it, it is a big problem because people just imagine that any kind of cold you get calls for antibiotic, and they go to a pharmacy and they buy but, their penicillin or any antibiotic they want. But I think that part of that is, you know, we are using, um, 
Google exists in this really weird, weird space, right? Where it's like a, it's like a, it's like a stupid AI. It's like a, it's like a machine that hasn't really learned, right? It gives you just enough information to say your cold could be a pneumonia, right? It could be a terminal illness, um, and I hope that once we really, if we really embrace this technology, the whole idea is it's efficient, intuitive delivery of information, because the whole model is built to think like us. It's built to go through decision trees, to question things, to use multiple sources of data to guide a decision. So I really do wonder if we embrace AI to its fullest potential, will a, will a patient just hip fire vancomycin, like, and just say, oh, I have a cold. Like, I, I, I highly doubt that a well-made algorithm would tell that patient, go pick up vancomycin, right? So I, I would actually see it as, it all depends on really embracing this new tool. It's gonna to come whether we like it or not, but it has the ability to inform us in a way we've never been informed. So I hope it can alleviate that. But right now I don't know how it could, honestly I don't know how it could make that situation worse. Like um, if, if someone right now in a different country could go into any pharmacy and demand a certain drug, I imagine just if they're more informed they're less likely to do it. I do hope that it helps over like overall with education, not just patient education when somebody gets a cold center at home, but overall education we get at schools and biology classes to make it more substantial and help in the future to prevent this kind of things from happening. Yeah. Um, and also while we're on the like global talk of things, um, you mentioned a little bit about um, inequalities in access to health and how AI could make it worse. On an optimistic note, if we think that maybe in areas that do not have as many doctors, yeah. just accessible, it can actually yeah. make it better. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that that is a tremendous area for, for, for you to, like a, a tremendous utility in, for example, uh, helping guide surgical procedures in through, you know, we use a lot of minimally invasive robot-based or technology-based interventions, but we don't have that many people trained abroad to utilize these interventions. So you could have remote surgical operations. And this has been a topic for discussion for a few years now. And I think that these models provide a new conduit for that. Um, I definitely think that those patients can tr benefit tremendously. My fear is that, you know, so much of our innovation and our progress goes into where things are invested. And I'm interested, I did my master's in public health, and I'm doing it because I have an interest in global health. Uh, I plan on going to Uganda in the summer, right? And to, to really understand that my family's from Pakistan, and I've seen people with access to nothing, people, people who have literally never seen a physician in their lives. And I worry, will these people, where will the funding go? Will funding be drawn, because money is not infinite, right? Will money be drawn from other initiatives that would have otherwise promoted the establishment of a clinic in a rural area? to be funneled more into deep, deep learning methods or, or you know, surgical robot techniques in under-resourced in, in, in under settings. And I would argue that for those patients, I think they have bigger problems. They have more systemic infrastructure issues that need funding, that need attention. And I worry that AI and its amazing innovations may distract or may redirect funding from these under-resourced areas. So I would argue that the patient in Agahan University, best university in Pakistan, who's able to get that surgery would love, uh, you know, a, a urologist in America to remove their kidney stone. But the person who lives 50 miles out of town 
and has no nearby clinic may say, you know, we just need a primary care doc. And, you know, the money that could have gone to build a clinic here is now being funneled into promoting the highly advanced techniques there. Do you think the use of like telehealth and telemedicine um, could help bridge that gap a little bit for, for patients? I think it definitely can. I think that, I think it's hard because telemedicine, I think, has, has tremendous potential. Um, but I think it's limited in that there's, there's a few issues that I have with telemedicine. I think one of them is for people with limited healthcare access, uh, you know, you want to get them to show up to the next, to the next appointment. And I don't know if telehealth has that platform of, of just human connection to incentivize a trusted relationship. There's, there's so much, um, especially in the world of global health. You know, uh, like like Pakistan still has polio because when creating the polio vaccine, it was so the data was being used to help hunt for Bin Laden. Like in those areas, they have strong distrust of any medical system. And so, in my own global health work abroad, being there in person and holding someone's hand has that impact to overcome the trust. Right? I don't think the issue is just in delivery of information or delivery of medicine. It's in delivery of care. Can you deliver care as effectively to a to a wary population through the phone? I think it has tremendous utility here. I think it has tremendous utility in many places, but there's some areas where I don't think telehealth is the best. Yeah, and so on the subject of communication, you know, you know, OpenAI, uh, you know, they're working with Hint Health to develop a new clinical documentation platform, and they aim to add functionality to Hint Health's all-in-one platform which will allow the consultations between patients and DTC physicians to be recorded and then automatically transcribed into clinical documentation using OpenAI's large language models. <laughs> so do you think these types of technologies, so like audio transcribing, will be effective in emergency care settings? Absolutely. I think that uh, so most medical scribes uh, learn a bit. They have their initial visits in the ED uh, because that's where you hear the most stories with the least listeners. Uh, and I think that that leaves a lot of these stories untold. Uh, if anyone's ever read an emergency department note, they are shockingly brief. Um, and I think that what this provides for is one, stories to be heard. You know, for, for whatever provider, that primary care provider, whoever would actually want to know that story, now actually gets captured in that documentation and provides a lot more social context to their health. Um, I also think that it makes medical delivery far more efficient. I think that real-time scribing, if we can show that it's reliable and initial data shows that, uh, has tremendous utility. And I think if you know, so much of a physician's or resident's time is also spent on answering patient questions about uh, medication refills or about like other tasks that need to be completed that I believe could easily be done by a machine. Um, because these really are often like yes-no questions or is this safe or is this not or basic advice. And I think if you're freeing up the time of the clinician, again, I think, it, I think it allows us to reconnect with why we came here. I think a lot of medical professionals have a dream, have this idea of what they thought medicine would be, which is truly your care in the world, your only care in the world perhaps, is the patient right in front of you, not the billions of charts in front of you. And I hope that this technology really allows, and I think it will allow for that reality to be achievable a truly personalized medicine, which is 
something that to me sounded inconceivable a few years ago. Did I, did I answer that question? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense because I feel like the way our education is structured in terms of like med school, like we're burdened with a lot of administrative stuff instead of building on that patient and physician communication. And so I feel like um, having these audio trans transcribing technologies could really help with patient engagement and bring back like what it used to be like. Absolutely. And I think that you know when you look at I, I'm, I love the history of medicine. I love this idea. I'm clearly a medical romantic, right? If you get me going, I'll say that everything has a story or a poem. Um, but, I, but I think that, that medicine inherently, I think medicine started, has been losing its humanity for a while, right? And we see that downstream effect as the medical student. We see the, the physician who's broken, the resident who's burned out. And these are felt by the young, by the youth, of the medical community and you know there's some proverb i forget where from but it's you know, protect your joyful and right now that bright excited medical student is seeing the burnt out physician who has to say oh my god all physicians talk about how much they have to chart how much they have to write and i think it really affects us i think it changes how we view clinical encounters and i think it's an it's crazy to think that maybe as a resident i'll be able to spend time talking to people it's a, it's a weird thing. It's an exciting thing. Uh, how do you think it, AI can advance the medical education, like for medical students specifically, not just along the road, but in med schools? Oh, very interesting. So, so I have, I mean, I've many thoughts on medical education. I'm on, I'm on the committees for our, our curriculum review boards and stuff like that. I mean, I think education is shockingly archaic. I think that education is almost always at least a few years behind. I think AI has been uh, one of the first times that we've seen people of all ages stop what they're doing and say, I need to talk about this. You know, we all have moments throughout any educational system where we're like, I wish I learned something practical. I wish they taught me about taxes in high school. I wish they taught me about economics in college. Uh, and no, you studied neuroscience, so you won't know it, right? And I think what AI has done is, is already switched a conversation to like, we need to, there's a new emerging technology that will shape everything. We need to discuss it. In terms of how it applies to a medical school curriculum, I think what it can do is be a very open validation for tools that are successful in learning. I think that medical curriculums are so hesitant to embrace the modern structure of curricula. They always ask you, what textbook are you using? No one reads a textbook anymore. We watch videos, we do flashcards, we are absorbing more than, you know, if someone trained or took step one in, I believe, like 1980, our step exam is more than 10 times the depth. The first, the, the volume of first aid, our textbook for USNLE step one, has grown by more than 10 times since its inception in 1990. And we're scoring higher than they did. We are, we are getting way more information and scoring higher. Now, why is that? Not because we're smarter. It's because of the tools we're using. Because things have revolutionized medical learning. What every medical student will see, though, is that their curricula do not embrace this. They do not embrace asynchronous models. They do not embrace, um, uh, you know, uh, oh my god, what's the word for it? Like space-based recall, essentially. Um, these tools that we know are heavily validated in, in learning, right? And I think what, hopefully, if you can have AI-designed curriculums, they'll look at the data. They'll say, what is the best way, objectively, to teach this information? 
Right now, so much of our curricula is dictated by very accomplished, very prestigious people who are so focused on teaching the way they were taught, right? And so I hope that AI can just really tell us objectively, what is the best way to learn? What are the best resources to learn? And as we've seen with ChatGPT being able to write a full-on essay from a keyword, right? Uh, I think the platforms you can build for conveying information will totally change, whether that's medical graphics, videos. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that AI has a tremendous ability to create a narrative out of something. I also feel like it can help with more personalized learning experience for medical students because in the end of the day, all you have to learn a tremendous amount of information. Absolutely. But the way we learn is different. So we can help create like just personalized learning experience for them to make it more Absolutely. efficient. Totally. And I think just as it makes it's great for personalized medicine, it's great for personalized delivery of information, right? Like if if a machine can learn what makes you what makes you learn well, right? What do you learn well from? Are you more audio? Are you more visual? What are you struggling with? Can create packages for you to say, you know, use these resources. We know we have great ones. I just need to show you them. Um, I think there's a lot of utility there. But yeah. yeah, I also feel like in terms of innovation, because the reason that the amount of knowledge you need has grown from 1992 now is because just the, we just know more and we need to learn more. I'm in a, like basic science research and I can't keep up with knowledge that's coming out on one single virus. Yeah. I have to keep up with that. You have to learn the whole human body all the time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like AI technology can also help implement that into curriculum and into like to help current physicians who already had their education learn those things faster and more efficiently. Absolutely. But I also think it provides a lens of you don't actually need to know everything to be a good doctor. In reality, the things that make us good at what we do are rarely, if you only stick to the job description, you won't really succeed in a lot of fields. It's more about what do people want from people, right? Are you kind, caring? Do you go out of your way for others, right? Do you promote the human inside you? And I think if you have better tools to carry out information, to absorb information, to, to, to condense what you needed to know into formats that are more intuitive, you can just spend more time being all of those intangibles that actually help you succeed in these in any industry. Does that make sense? Yeah, so like let the computer stick to information and let humans be human. <laughs> Absolutely, right? And I think we want to see that, right? We have a world, again, I think that chess is a fascinating metaphor for this. You know, uh, Magnus Carlsen's over a thousand points lower in chess than the best computer. Guess who watches all his games? I mean, guess who has the, the most grossing of any chess player ever in a world where machines can do it better, right? We, we, there's, there's a human element that we'll always want, that will always excite us. And I, I don't know if, if our jobs in this world are to be databases. I think we build computers for a reason. We just are really scared of them. <laughs> Um, but I, I absolutely would love to hear your perspectives as well as a as an undergraduate student studying yeah. data science. Like, where where do you feel this is headed? No, I, I that's so interesting because, well, mostly for me, how you say that computers were built for a specific reason is for, for well, my perspective is that I think no matter what, I feel like humanity should always have some sort of control over AI because if we don't have control over AI and it spurs and kind of becomes autonomous, right? It's why did we build it in the first place is to help us and not to become like better or smarter than us and could potentially kind of undermine some of what 
the purposes we had in mind to create it. So, I mean, I haven't delved too far into my studies yet, but I think more than anything is that I've always kept that in mind. And it's, you know, just with current news, with, you know, open AI, like the leadership, I don't know if you guys heard about that, um, but it's just like, it's scary because it's already becoming a reality for all of us, right? So, yeah. Yeah. And I think AI beyond medicine has a lot of scary things. Right. Like I think AI in medicine, you're seeing actually some of its best, like, oh my God, it can transform our lives. But, yeah. but you know, in medicine, we have this, this term called a therapeutic index, um, where every medicine is a poison. We just control the dosage. We just control that one range where it is actually therapeutic, right? If you go beyond the therapeutic index, it's a poisonous uh, drug, right? Acetaminophen in excess, my God, you need a liver, you're, you're, you're done, right? Um, AI, or I actually would argue just technology in general, it could be the world's panacea, right? The drug to end all disease. It has a very narrow therapeutic index. If not used judiciously, if not managed cautiously, this will be a poison. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful with the power we have. Right. Yeah, the question is that how exactly do you manage that? Because there's the kind of technology that spreads without control. It's not something that is quantitative. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think that also it develops based on what's driving it. You know, what drives development or innovation, particularly in America? It's the capitalistic infrastructure of where does the money go? Because that's where innovation appears, right? Innovation is the product of competition in the system. And so I think this is where we have to be careful. When we limit the discussions to medicine, medicine has an ultimate goal that has some sense of humanity despite any other <laughs> issues with it. It's that someone's health outcomes need to be better for it to be considered successful, right? So I think the innovation in the healthcare space can be useful for bettering outcomes, but does it actually improve our lives? Do people, the people at risk of losing jobs, do we protect them? right? The people who can be forgotten, or even there are some specialists who could lose their job, like a diagnostic radiologist is doing the job that is better done by a machine, right? Um, there are people, well, like, I wonder, will AI produce a better world for everybody? And I think the biggest question is, like, especially when you extend beyond this, and I, I'm, I'm pessimistic, but, but uh, I, I think of it like, um, in what 19 prior to 1910 i think like 1902 or so uh the wright brothers were the first people to take a piece of metal and sustain it in the sky long enough to call it flight within 60 years we reached the moon the rocket fuel was developed i believe in the 20s or 30s before we used it to reach the moon we used it to launch a nuke i think we just found a new form of rocket fuel and we know it's going to get you to the moon we also know it's probably going to do some bad things and we have to start those discussions there. It's very interesting how you brought up, you know, your knowledge of history about, because we've all heard the phrase, uh, history repeats itself, right? <laughs> so, you know, just kind of taking that into account, it's pretty scary, right? Like, yeah. some of the applications, so, I mean, I mean, just like, kind of going back to uh, everything is that, hopefully you can have some better grasp and start these discussions early. I think the fear is, and it's the knowledge of like, you know, we know it's going to repeat. We know, and we've seen it. We've seen it even in our own lifetimes, right? I mean, right. who's going to, pro who, unfortunately, who may just come back in office, right? Someone who is just <laughs> someone who no one wanted to die, right? Um, uh, I, I, 
I worry. I definitely worry. But also, I mean, we must go on. And uh, this is a technology that, if embraced right, can solve so many problems. Um, I'm glad it's more on medicine. Because medicine, oh, I think AA is going to be fantastic. Um, but in the general world, misinformation, all that stuff, it's going to be tough. How about you? What are, what are your thoughts? And, and sorry, your master's is in health informatics. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I have a more optimistic view on AI. I feel like it was introduced in medicine as um, a supportive role. Like it's not meant to take over jobs. Like of course that might happen, but you know, it's we have the goal of using AI to improve patient outcomes, and mm-hmm. if that yeah. takes over some people's jobs, and that's just part of development, I guess. But I feel like um, it's important to hold the people who are developing these technologies accountable. Like we can't just let them capitalize on it and like lead to other bad intended, um, unintended consequences. So I feel like to maximize AI and have it implemented properly um, as a support to decision system, I guess, I think we need to have more people from different backgrounds talk about it together. So we should like improve physicians and nurses and maybe even patients when we're trying to implement it into like medical systems. Yeah. Well, I think that that we need to approach this like the team-based sport that it is. Too often we train as individuals operating in a team context. Medical care is the perfect example of that. The medical student is focused way too much on theoretical pathways that don't always add up to disease or illness, right? And we realize that, that the medical student needs the nurse, the PA, but also needs, in everything they're using, they need a technical um, assistant in, in utilizing a device. They need a biostatistician to even understand their analysis, right? I think that we need to open up and the discussions of AI need to be team-based because we are all collaborating together whether we know it or not. I think the lack of team-based infrastructure in medicine has caused a lot of problems and a lot of disrespect and and, and terrible dynamics in, in how we conduct healthcare. We're all here because we want to help each other, right? Yet, we're not taught about that. We're not taught to help each other, right? Uh, we are focused too much on helping ourselves. And, and I think that um, when it comes to the, the AI in medicine, I totally agree with you. I'm very optimistic with what it can do here. I think that the goals in what it can do for patient outcomes are tremendous. I just think we need to be careful about when we are utilizing these technologies um, you know, who is, are we keeping people accountable and who is also controlling them? Mm-hmm. Are we keeping the human element right. in medicine? Uh, and I think we will. I think we will continue to do that. I don't think that many people's jobs will be lost from the a- AI introduction to medicine. I think healthcare outcomes will improve tremendously in things that we never even thought we could understand. For example, like uh, another good application is an EKG data usage. Rohan Kira at Yale does a lot of this. Uh, EKG has over uh, probably over 10,000 data points, different vectors of electrical activity in the heart, right? When a clinician reads an EKG, they break it down into, is it a normal rhythm? Are there abnormalities that indicate heart damage, right? We rarely think of an EKG as a predictive tool. Uh, the EKG, in reality, is telling the story of the heart, all of its stress it's experienced, and perhaps its weaknesses and what it will continue to experience. We used AI models in, in EKGs to look at how you can predict heart attacks in situations where, uh, where we didn't clinically think it was a heart attack. 
and AIs have found, wow, we can, we can, we can find the heart attack that would have been forgotten. Uh, we can predict heart failure from EKG data. That's insane. Um, we can predict who's going to go into arrhythmias that would have no symptoms. Right? So you can catch people way before these things happen. So those are examples of how I think AI will be tremendous for, for clinical utility. Um, I guess, well, from the, from the PhD lens, right, I feel that you are on really, I, I would argue that all of you are more engaged with science than I am. Um, I, like, interestingly enough, I think that's where you know, people misinterpret medicine and for what I believe it is. I think that, that the real cutting edges of science are in data science, informatics, and basic lab medicine. Um, how do you see your field changing? Well, as we mentioned earlier, I think I do really see ChatGPT and AI as a toolbox. Like, it is another helper to do what we're doing. Um, in my area, like RNA-seq, any kind of bioinformatics would be much easier done with uh, help of AI and machine learning technologies. Um, but I don't think it will change my field tremendously because we are constantly developing technology that ease the way we do science, that accelerate discovery, that help us publish faster. Um, so it will just be a step forward, but not a step to a completely different dimension. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, and then, of course, the application education, as we discussed before. And just in general, I am not pessimistic about AI technologies as bad, like as much as we have discussed this here, because it is a tool. It's not going to do anything by itself, at least not at this stage. It can be used by all people, and it will be used by all kinds of people. But the way that it will impact the world for good or for the worst, it's going to depend on the intentions of who's using it. So I feel like the balance will actually prevail at this point. So I would, that's an interesting point, because I agree with you that it's based on the intentions of those who use it. The question comes down to what do you think the public's intention is? I think when you condense it to medicine, you're self-selecting for a very specific goal, very specific people. I think that some part of us no, we've known what the internet has done. The internet has been the greatest. We have the Library of Alexandria times a million right in front of us, yeah. right? And yet, what has the internet produced in terms of particularly misinformation, mistrust, uh, miscommunication, um, with new knowledge, with new conduits for knowledge, comes many opportunities, many platforms for discussion, and many opportunities to spread incorrect or misguiding things. So when it goes beyond medicine, my fear is the spread of misinformation. My fears are if we're going beyond medicine, you know, we already have a deep fake, right? We know that, you know, you, it is not long from where we could have a real-time state of the union deep fake that gives you a totally alternative reality where no one knows what's real. That to me is the concerns with AI, is that what is being promoted and what is incentivized by the public and wh where does the money go? Right. In medicine, the money is directed to patient outcomes. In medicine, I think AI is could be a panacea. I worry about its therapeutic index elsewhere. Well, if we say, let's call it propaganda, right? The area which we consider most evil for the use of AI at this point. Um, I think the introduction of AI would, first of all, also help people who are consuming information to try to distinguish what is... Uh, confirms true or what can be a lie, as well as at a level where we all will know that deepfakes exist 
it'll be harder to distribute information and make everybody believe it. Mm-hmm. So I think it can actually lead to advancement of, I don't know, distribution of information that is actually objectively true. I think it'll do both. I think that ultimately we already see this in our news media today, right? We already see that as we've increased access to different narratives, we hear many different opinions, and we can hear essentially alternative realities on every in every dimension of whatever political idea you have. You have your alternative reality of the internet. So of course AI will build upon that, right? AI will be everything good and bad that exists about our modern modes of communication will be another way that AI will be used. So, I mean, there's, there's tremendous utility, but I do, I do wonder when, when we are trying to, to distinguish, I, I think that the, I've, I've talked to quite a few professors here actually about this. This is a big concern of a lot of people at the School of Public Health in particular, because public health is so heavily based on information, right? One of my um, professors was at a conference in New York that had a lot of big names there. And a big conversation was, what do you do about misinformation? Their takeaway was, you just out-deliver them. You just produce more. You just make it so that there is more correct information than incorrect information. This is leading leaders in, or head, like leaders in that industry. Which I think any young person could hear that and be like, that's nonsense. Like, that's not effective, right? It does make sense, but the problem is that anybody else can use the same tool. Yes. China can pay several thousand people to produce information that is not really correct. Exactly. Right. So then it comes down to where is the money going, right? Who's investing? And so you can, I mean, we see this with our own political spheres of what's going on in the Middle East right now, of, you know, how people are, are just creating their own bubbles of information for different messages, right? Um, I, I worry that once you extend it beyond just the medical sphere, discussions are going to be really interesting. The internet is going to be a very different space from what we grew up on. And I think that it's only people who grew up in that age where, like, I remember when I was a kid, I couldn't Google something. And now, I mean, that's a, that's, it became a verb over a decade ago, mm-hmm. right? Uh, these things change quick, and they'll only change quicker. And so I think that we have to be cautious, we have to be mindful of what we're putting out there. I think that the, the potential is tremendous. The ways we'll see the benefits of medicine, I'm very happy to be a physician in today's era. Um, I will say that. I think that it will change the lives of not just our patients, but of us as providers. Um, I worry about growing up in this era, or in that future era. Uh, and I think we all do in some way, right? But I know that that's not the topic of the podcast, so I won't. No, it's, um, I think it's cool because you get to talk about all these things like that extent beyond the scope of medicine. Um, and so, would you say you're just more so worried about this generation with this information overload, right? Like, I mean, I heard the phrase, like, some, like, kids today are just born with an iPad in their heads, you know? They just, like, have access to so much information at their fingertips. And just kind of talking about that medically related, like, yeah. you know, the misinformation with that, like, is, is that just exponentially worse? Is it just going to get worse and worse, like, at an exponential rate? I think there has to be legislation that changes how things are used. I don't think that, I I really don't believe that we'll allow it to get as bad as it could be. Mm -hmm. I think that there will be interventions because a lot of us already know there's a problem. A lot of us are, the first step in approaching any problem is saying there is a problem. And many people today are having this discussion of, 
what do we do with the child on the phone who is lost? You know, kids today through COVID are, are you know, seventh graders are reading at a fourth grade level, mm-hmm. and one of them will one day be president, right? Like, like that's that's the crazy part, yeah. right? Is that like that uh, inherently we will have to change how we educate and how we introduce our youth for the betterment of our society. So I think we'll have to see legislation get involved in some way to reduce what children are able to see mm-hmm. with these devices. Um, like we all know, I mean, there's there's a lot of things pointing to like children when they are on TikTok get introduced to like soft core pornography, yeah. right? Like, what do you do? What does that do to the young mind? What does that do to the eight year old who's watching Andrew Tate videos? Mm-hmm. When you know, like, what like this is the, the you know we we the world of social media is very interesting. It used to be that the eight year old heard their opinions from SpongeBob and their friends, <laughs> and now the eight year old is getting opinions from grown people with very specific opinions. Yeah. So we really need to change. How are we? You know, we have to be very careful with what we expose people to, especially in a time where you know, we we know that social media and our phones are as addictive as almost any drug I could give you in a medicine cabinet. We always say, "Oh, don't give them ketamine. You put them in a K hole. Don't snow them with morphine." Why would you do that, right? Well, isn't it ironic that that uh, we do the same thing to our youth? Um, and I think we'll see legislation eventually. Did that answer the question? Or did yeah, I so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a brilliant question. I think that what we, how do we sh- use this infrastructure to shape our youth? Mm-hmm. And I hope, if used right, larger language models, where TikTok uses earlier versions of that model, can hopefully shape you to content that helps you, you know, these kids, theoretically, I and mean, you'll talk to a kid and they'll know what a, what a cell is at eight. I teach... Uh, first and third graders biology and I'm like how do you know that how did, dude I didn't even I only knew Spongebob right <laughs> and so the potential is amazing right so it's just shaping with all of this information out there right uh, the library of Alexandria needed a librarian so do we right who is going to do that mm-hmm. I hope that AI can be that librarian to help show us information that betters our learning right Thank you very much for coming and talking to us today. I think this was great discussion and we all need to continue talking about it and thinking about it. And we'll see how things develop in the nearest future.